Hello, and welcome to Right Now at the Writer's Colony. I'm Chad Gurley, your host and colony coordinator at the Writer's Colony at Dairy Hollow in the historic arts village of Eureka Springs, Arkansas. We provide uninterrupted residency time for writers of all genres, whether you're writing a novel, short stories, poetry, cookbooks, a script, a play, a grant, a sermon, a speech, whatever you are writing, you are welcome here without discrimination. During the Right Now at the Writer's Colony podcast, you will get to join me in conversation with some of the writers in residence. They come from all over the world, from all walks of life to create. You'll also come alongside me and talk with artists, writers, and visionaries of Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and our local community. And together with some very special guests, we'll discover just what is happening right now at the Writer's Colony. So welcome, and thank you for listening. Howdy, everyone. From the front desk of the Writer's Colony, I am Chad Gurley, and welcome to this episode of Right Now at the Writer's Colony. Today, I have the honor and the pleasure of speaking with writer Martha Ann Toll. Martha's fiction has appeared in Catapult, Volume 1 Brooklyn, Emerge Magazine, our magazine here at the Writer's Colony, Slushpile Magazine, Yale's Letters Journal. Her essays and reviews appear regularly on NPR and in The Millions, as well as in The Rumpus, Bloom, Scoundrel Time, which is forthcoming, and the Washington Independent Review of Books. We are so excited to have Martha here. She is a nominator and critic for NPR's 2017, 2018, and 2019 Book Concierge. And you can find out more about Martha at MarthaAnnToll.com. That's MarthaAnn with an E, Toll.com. Now let's dive into our conversation with Martha. Hi, Martha. Hi, Chad. It's great to be here. <laughs> Good. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. It is a great time, I gotta say. Yeah? <laughs> yes. Are you, is it productive? It's really productive. I only, um, I guess my only tension is wanting to go out and walk in the woods and uh, sit at my computer. It's a tough choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So th- tell us a little bit about you. Um, so I never really know where to start, but... Um, it's easier if I start at the beginning, if that's okay. Yeah. So my first um, deep dive into the arts was um, as a musician. Oh, really? And I studied to be a classical violist oh, and wow. very intensively. And music is a huge part of my life. And somewhere in the middle of college, I realized this wasn't going to be a career in which I would have the choices that I wanted. I think okay. I, I could yeah. have had a career, but I may not yeah. have the choices. So... Um, I went to law school and law was not a huge leap for me only because, um, well, there are a lot of lawyers in my family, but also I understood even way back then that I was a creature of the written word. Words have always been important and easy for me. And they were also in the water supply at home. My mother was a professional copy editor and editor. She worked all through our childhood, um, but she didn't leave the house. So the galleys would be all over the dining room table. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure we totally understood how serious she was. I mean, it was her profession. Yeah. I, I certainly get it now. And my dad was a lawyer, but a very, very skilled writer. Uh-huh. And they care, both cared passionately about books and writing. So I always want to acknowledge 
how important that is. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, I got into social justice for the last 25 years. I've been running a foundation in which I am the founding executive director. Oh, wow. I work for a family, and our focus is on homeless housing and homelessness and criminal justice reform. We got into criminal justice through anti-death penalty work and juvenile justice, and we've now um, expanded to the extent possible. We don't have a huge endowment, but we are deeply interested in mass incarceration, and we were there a long time before anybody else was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and we... Um, so when I was hired, we had no stationery. It was that kind of thing. So this has been sort of a huge project of love and passion, and I work for a terrific family. And we have expanded our footprint in a couple of different ways, one by deep collegial relationships with the big boys in the field, like the Ford Foundation and the Gates Foundation, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and also, I had the idea, well, my, my board asked whether I could raise money, and I said no, because we were endowed. But I had the idea, well, basically, they said to me, I should try, and I had been in the process of developing a relationship with a giant European foundation that was interested in homelessness in the United States. Oh, wow. So for the last 10 years, we have raised about $4.5 million from them, wow. um, which comes to us, and we have the honor and privilege of regranting it. So it goes out oh, as okay. our, under our name, and we've been able to expand a lot of work and be sort of really a trendsetter in some of what we do. Well, um, so did you find social justice or did social justice find you? Um, it was a little of each. I mean, I think um, there's a lot of social justice in the family. That's the first thing. Yeah. And I married to uh, somebody who had the first global warming job in Washington, I think. So oh, wow. <laughs> I'm married to it. I, I got kids who do it. I don't know. So... <laughs> Um, but I was particularly, so I've always had a passion for social justice. I also knew what a charitable foundation was because of my um, involvement with music. So initially I thought I might go into arts funding. I'm still not in arts funding, <laughs> but I knew what foundations were. So I actually looked around. Um, and at the time I was hired, I had been a lawyer for a while and tried... Um, everything for profit government and nonprofit and then i was like i don't think i want to be a lawyer yeah <laughs> i think it's an inefficient and cumbersome way to solve problems yeah so yeah. so we've kind of found each other i guess i would say interesting so when you give to the charitable um foundations or you give to actually nonprofits correct we right? give to organizations so okay. we so i want to get to my writing life but to answer your question um we fund primarily advocacy and policy because as a small organization we thought that would be the most effective thing to do so for example if you if you fund a policy person um there was a time when i first started that there wasn't a really congealed group of uh, organizations in Washington paying attention to the federal budget on homelessness. Oh, and we funded that position. You could actually see the federal budget go up by hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. I mean, that's a really concrete example. We've also funded housing trust fund campaigns where it'll be a statewide campaign where the advocates are looking for a dedicated state revenue line to, gotcha. to okay. do that. So that's some of what we do. And we are 
deeply, deeply engaged in racial justice, and I guess that's where um, it's the first time where I've seen my writing life intersect with my work life because my I started writing um, really in earnest, and it's still not clear to me how or why. After my mom died, she died in. Um, 1999, mm. and I definitely dated to that time, but I'm still trying to figure out why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I had always been a writer. I was always a maniac reader, and I always kept a journal, and I always wrote snail mail, even after snail mail. Yeah, died. yeah. <laughs> Out of fashion. I'm sitting here with a notebook and pen in case I think it's like I have to write yeah. down. Um, but the first and absolute highest priority in my writing has been around music and oh. trying to experiment with getting music onto the page. And, Interesting. And I've written, I have several unpublished novels. One is um, entirely about music. One is a lot about ballet. And the, the project that I'm currently working on, actually two are about music, is, is about art paint. It's about a painting. So that is apparently something I'm super interested yeah. in. And I think that any um, aspiring novelist will tell you that it is not easy to get published. And I heard the acclaimed novelist Anne Enright, who's an Irish novelist who won the Booker Prize, um, I heard her speak in Washington, and she said, whenever you meet a debut novelist, it's really their 16th book. And I think that's... Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so. But I don't doubt it. <laughs> while I have been assiduously trying to get my fiction out in the world, I have sort of grown another couple of branches. I'm a regular book reviewer now for NPR Books. Oh, okay. And The Post is testing me out next month, too, which is great. Um, and that's a place where my social Post justice... Post in... Washington Post, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Washington, D.C. Yeah. So the book reviewing has an interviewing writers um, you know I publish interviews author interviews as well it's really been a place where for the first time social justice and um, my writing life have intersected because I'm really interested in getting lifting up the voices of more marginalized writers a lot I do a lot around writers of color and women and I also um, do a lot of work around criminal justice because that's an area of expertise. So I have a range of books that I review, but to the extent I don't have a lot of control over what I review, but to the extent I'm able to pitch, I make a very big effort to lift up voices of color. Oh, that's awesome. You're listening to Right Now at the Writer's Colony. We'll return to our conversation with writer Martha Ann Toll after this quick break. Listen local. Homegrown K-Fresh is community connection. Eureka Springs Fresh Music Mix. Streaming worldwide at kfresh.fm. K-Fresh. Uniquely Eureka. Let's get back to our conversation with writer Martha Ann Toll. I'm Chad Gurley, and you are listening to Right Now at the Writer's Colony. The novels that you've written, they're mm-hmm. fiction, but they're about art? Yeah, well, the, yes. Is it like about a painter? Is there like a well, story? Well, so that's, I want to talk about that. That's the book I'm working on here. Um, the music novels are regular novels with plots and all okay. those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I am uh, one of four daughters, and in my family of origin, I'm the mother of two daughters, so there's a lot of daughters in my life. Yeah. And um, I stumbled upon the 
masterpiece of a famous 19th, early 20th century artist named John Singer Sargent. And the painting is called The Daughters of Edward Darley Boyd. And it is a painting of four daughters. Interesting. I got a postcard of it. I don't even know where I got the postcard about 10 or 12 years ago, and I've been carrying it around for 10 or 12 years trying to figure out what to do with it. (laughs) And I now... um, I was advised to maybe do some research around the painting, and I went up to Boston last year. The painting hangs in the uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Okay. And it's four girls who are really quite separate from one another. They're really not interacting at all, and they're in the painting are two gigantic, really gigantic Japanese urns. Interesting. And during the course of my research, um, which was extremely helpful, I, I learned, first of all, the urns are with the painting. They've been saved. They, they sit in front of the painting. They're about oh, really? seven feet tall. Okay. Is anybody and, in them? Well... <laughs> It's funny you should ask. Um, They arrived at the museum full of basically detritus from the family. They would just like toss things in. Oh, really? (laughs) So for a novelist, that's pretty extraordinary. And the girls would put in their badminton shuttlecocks. There were cigar butts. There was a donut. I mean, it's pretty amazing. That's so funny. And the family itself has a really, really interesting history. Um, with both the artist, John Singer Sargent, and with the writer, Henry James. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of material there. So that is a project I'm working on now. I have not named, do not plan to name the artist in the book. So there, there's a character called the painter and the writer. Okay. Who's very loosely uh, modeled on Henry James and John Singer Sargent. And the... Um, I'm the third of four daughters, so one of there's several narrators. But one narrator is the third daughter who was eight. Interesting. When the painting was painted, and her dilemma is that she's stuck. She was frozen as an eight-year-old in the painting. She's trying to figure out oh, what to do about it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so it's kind of like writing from the perspective of those daughters not back in that time, but kind of like how they exist in the painting now? Well, I'm trying to do both, and that's one of the problems I've been trying to work out while I'm here. So there's a whole surreal element, including the Japanese vases are sort of a Greek chorus, you know, whining about the fact that these girls are throwing their garbage in. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so it's a mix, and I, I think that's it's it's a real challenge. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. very fluid time, and I'm not. Sure, I'm really, I'd say, halfway through a first draft. Okay. It's in an early stage. Okay. Yeah. So when you write, do you? Um, and I ask writers this: do do the voices and the words just come to you? Do you let the story take you somewhere, or are you really more of a writer that's like, I need to have this structured in a certain way, and and I'm going to write this part now, you know? Well, that's a great question. And I always, I'm not a planner in that way. And I think it's partly because my day job is so, so much planning and so much organizing. And I write a lot for my day job. So I don't do that um, in my writing life. So I have a st- quick story I want to tell you. I went... We have a wonderful bookstore in Washington, Politics and Prose, and I once went two weeks in a row. The first was to hear the English writer William Boyd speak, 
and he he's published novels and screenplays and all kinds of stuff. And he said, I don't believe in writer's block because I do two years of research before I start a novel, and of course I have it all outlined, and you know there's no such thing as writer's block. And the next the writer's what block, writer's block, block. block. yeah. Okay. And the next week, I heard Alice McDermott, who's an acclaimed novelist, saying, "Why would I want to do research or outline?" I'm a novelist. The whole point is I start with a scene and I go from there. Oh, okay, so anything goes. Yeah. We all have our own process. I'm not a planner. I usually have some start with a grain of an idea. I mean, one of my early unpublished novels came from an obituary about a pianist and his wife, a two-piano couple, and the wife had just died, and I thought... That's such a dilemma for him. He's not only mourning his wife, he's lost his career. Right. I have a whole novel around Wow. That. So um, things kind of unfold. I, um, of course, when I'm doing book reviews, that's different. I'm much right, more right, 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 right. But one of the beauties of being a Dairy Hollow is it's very hard to get my fiction gear in brain, in, in gear, I'm sorry, my fiction brain in gear. Um, coming home from a day of work. So what right. I love is getting off the grid because my fiction brand is a lot more accessible and a qu- right. very quiet um, p- place without other encumbrances. Right. Do you... So I'm thinking about the music and, and I'm wondering if, you know, did did playing music, does that inform your writing? Yes. In the sense of like... Well, go ahead. Yes, in every possible way. I, I, it's, it's really, really, really important to me. First of all, it clearly affects my ear and how I hear language and mm-hmm. how I feel about words and my sense of what's going on the page. But the other thing that is so almost more important or as important as my viola teacher was really born to teach. He was a spectacular musician, but he was a... Um, just an extraordinary teacher and for musicians this is critical he really took music apart and taught you how to practice so I pretty much everything I know in my life came from him about the incremental nature of art and how you know where the discipline is and how you have to practice and how you take something apart and that um, a whole is made up of a lot of work, yeah, <laughs> a lot of yeah. little pieces. So, yeah. so in terms of discipline and drive, I feel like, you know, I started thinking about that at age fourteen, probably or okay. twelve or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But did you would you, did you enjoy writing certain things when you were a kid? Well, I I don't have a huge memory of this. We I think I wrote plays for my sisters to be in. Oh yeah. Certainly kept a diary forever. I wrote a lot of letters. Um, I wrote in college. I took classes where I had to write papers. I mean, I have always been writing. Yeah, yeah. There's no question about it. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Right Now at the Writers Colony. We have the great treat of hearing Martha read The Gigolo, which was published in our magazine, Emerge Magazine, here at the Writers Colony. Let's take a listen. The Gigolo. I once shared an office with a gigolo. We were paralegals at a white shoe law firm in Midtown Manhattan. His name was Gil, and he was on leave from Columbia Law School. Gil dressed like a banker, 
blonde hair parted on the side, cut close to his head, but not too close, a touch of gel, and black Ferragamo shoes immaculately shined. Our office was on the 40th floor. The three floors of the firm were connected by interior staircases that had pickets and banisters, all made from cherry wood. Oriental rugs lined the halls. I'm not sure whether it was the rugs or the code of conduct, but the place was quiet as a morgue. These were the days when you could smoke in the office, and Gil smoked in the office. Right outside our door was a secretary named Consuela who chain-smoked. She was pregnant. Computers hadn't yet arrived. We had desktop phones and legal pads. The office girls, they were called girls then, said Gil was a sexist. But they found him cute, and several of them angled to date him. Sexist or not, he fetched coffee and bagels for me from the firm cafeteria. Gil was gravely concerned about my naivete. It's true. I was clueless. While I was scheming with the girls about when to wear purple or turquoise tights to shock the establishment, events of great moment were occurring around us. Gil took it upon himself to enlighten me. For example... Mr. Progressive Partner, with his town and country wife and two charming children, was sleeping with Lucy, one of three professional paralegals. The rest of us were not considered professionals since we planned to stay only a year before entering law school. Lucy had other lovers, too. One day she came in with a black eye, bruised cheekbones, and black and blue arms, citing a fall down a friend's basement steps. Gil was quick to edify me, that another one of Lucy's married paramours had beat her up. The proof? Manhattan apartments don't have basement steps. After a month or two, Gil began to disclose a few more things about himself. I learned he serviced an older woman who lived on Park Avenue. When her husband left town, Gil would go over at lunch. He'd make up the time he missed at the firm later that evening. His Park Avenue job was more lucrative than ours. Mrs. Park Avenue had a white fur coat and inhabited a white apartment. She had white shag rugs and white puffy sofas and white muslin curtains. Her kitchen counters and cabinets were white as well. But Gil didn't enter the kitchen. His work was in her king-sized bed, which was covered in a white satin comforter. He said the bed had a touch of color. The pillowcases were bordered in pink ribbons. Mrs. Park Avenue was a platinum blonde with pale skin. Gill said she was too skinny and that she wore silver slip-on sandals when she wore shoes at all. Mrs. Park Avenue was interesting, but she did not solve the mystery of Sunflower. This was in the days before voicemail, so I answered Gill's phone when he went out. One person habitually rang, a man, and the message was always the same. Tell him Sunflower called. When Gil returned to the office, he'd call Sunflower, who was, apparently, Gil's object of worship. Gil would wave at me to close the door so no one in the hall would notice. Then they would fight, after which Gil would whine, apologize, and prostrate himself for what I never knew in a stage whisper. Often he wept. I'm ashamed to admit that I considered it a badge of honor, one, that I took messages without inciting Gil's ire, two, that Gil felt comfortable enough to fight in front of me, and three, that even though it was abundantly clear that Gil was in some kind of asphyxiating thrall to Sunflower, 
We never discussed him. After a while, I suggested to the office girls that Gil might be gay. They stomped out that idea fast. No one could be such a male chauvinist and talk about women the way he did if he were gay. I didn't mention the lady he serviced on Park Avenue or his heartbreaking sunflower hero worship. At the end of the year, I moved to Boston to start law school. Gill stayed at the firm. He said he wasn't ready to return to Columbia. In Boston, I learned something else about Gill. He was a great correspondence. The office girl warned me he'd never write, but he did, regularly. News bits, pleasantries. He never wrote about Sunflower. About that time, AIDS was discovered, or more precisely, AIDS was identified and named. Gay men started dying. Gill was the first person I knew who died of AIDS. I heard the news from a friend of a friend of a friend. Gill went before other people I knew, college friends, brothers of friends, co-workers, musicians, movie stars, fashion designers, fathers, sons, young men, old men, men in their prime, mothers and daughters too. I never found out Sunflower's real name. I never heard what happened to the pale lady in the white Park Avenue apartment. It's possible that I'm a tad less naive. It's not possible that the object of Gill's obsession survived the AIDS pandemic. Let's get back to our conversation with writer Martha Ann Toll. I'm Chad Gurley, and you are listening to Right Now at the Writer's Colony. So what's the next step for this book? Well, I've made the huge decision of um, stepping down from my job or stepping aside from my job, which is a major, major life decision and a lot of agonizing going into it because I love, love, love what I do and I care very much about making a contribution to the world. Um, But I feel like I need to make that big push. And it's just one way that I've put it is that I've for about 10 years I've known I've been on like a train wreck path because each job is getting bigger and bigger writing job is bigger and my day job is getting bigger and I I think I might have gotten to the train wreck yeah yeah so I am gonna um move aside in the spring and then um write full time although I think it's absolutely inevitable I'll keep a hand in social justice I'm not quite sure what that will look like okay it's a very big decision. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> so, yeah. Are you a scared? Big life yeah, I, I thought I would be excited. Mostly I'm just really a bit, I guess I'd say anxious, wondrous. You know, yeah, it, it yeah. feels a little bit like jumping off a cliff. Yeah. And I hope there's like a safety net under there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure. Well, isn't that what they say about the tarot card the fool or whatever is that he's walking (laughs) off a cliff but he's not really a fool because he knows that something's gonna catch him that's the reason why he's like oh my god i'm gonna bank that i like (laughs) (laughs) yeah someone told me that um but yeah that's a huge life change it is a really big life change and this is um so i just kind of announced this to my board in very late december early january so this is my first being at Dairy Hollow is really special for me because it's a little bit of a test, you yeah. know, a little bit of a microcosm, and yeah. I'm pretty thrilled to be here. <laughs> yeah, I'm glued to my chair, and it's 
good. It's really good. Do you have a little space at home that's I like do. your I'm writing really lucky. space? I okay. really, really like good. it. I do. And um, I do have a room of my own, and I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for cool. that. I can't even say how grateful yeah. I am. It's very important. Yeah, it's nice to have that space yeah. to yeah. set aside. Yeah. Well, and so as you've been here and you've been at Dairy Hollow, have have you been inspired by anything here that has maybe made its way into your book or well um i what i would say is um so two things one is i cannot find the mental real estate right now in it at home because the mental real estate is so taken up with mm-hmm. the social justice work and the book review work so first of all the real estate opened up which i'm really excited about yeah <laughs> really yeah. excited about and I, I, I've been able to solve a couple of problems in my book that I couldn't figure out or I couldn't even think about. But one thing I've learned, I've had the good fortune to be to, at a couple of residencies and I totally adore them and every single one has been transformational. Yeah. But one thing I've learned is to really take in what's happening. So what I have are not so much stuff that's going into the book, this book, but I've got fragments of things. I've started about four or five other um pieces while um, I'm here. Cool. Uh, conversations I've overheard, um, observations I've made, that kind of thing. So I think they will um, bubble up in the future. And I also wrote an essay, a personal essay about um, that I've been wanting to write for a long time that connects my family history with what I think is the most appalling refugee and immigrant mm. policy that we have right now. So that, that's been bothering me how's, for a long time. How's, how's that? Um, my family, one side of my family came um, to America to escape being murdered in the pogroms in Russia. And, oh, okay. you know, I think if we were, if it were today, we wouldn't be alive, yeah. um, you know, and yeah. I, I'm absolutely heartbroken about yeah. our immigration refugee policy. Yeah, yeah. The book sounds fascinating. Is Do you have a working title for it? No, I don't. I'm just calling it the name of the painting, which is The Daughters of Edward Darley Boyd. Um, And um, I don't have a really a lot of... I haven't really thought about the title. Okay. There's so many other problems to to solve. Um, And in some ways, I feel like it's very painstaking. I came here with about 80 pages, and I have about... 130 pages so that's really good but it's it's um i i can just go by pages i I could go by word count too but i guess what i'm saying is it's really really painstaking i started the beginning again because i felt like as a writer i'm often um i write quickly and so i have to go back and fill in right so i'm I'm kind of doing a lot of filling in and trying to think about things great yeah. What uh, any recommend? Would you recommend Dairy Hollow to the writers? Yes, family? absolutely. Okay. I can't recommend it enough. I mean, I have one writer colleague in Washington who asked me to email her as soon as I got here because she wants to apply. And while I was here, I discovered that I, I know a bunch of people have been here, and I didn't realize it. Yeah. So I have mixed feelings. I want you to get on the map, and I want everybody to come. But also, I'd love to come. <laughs> So well, feeling we'll selfish here. Yeah, well, you can make your next reservation today. <laughs> no, it's it's just an extraordinary privilege, and the 
people are so kind and so generous and um, I keep saying to Yana I'm the chief cook in my family and so to have someone oh, cooking for me is that's extraordinary a yeah. and I'm really interested really really interested in this part of the world I've never been here and a couple days ago I went to the Native American Museum in um, Bentonville and I was sort of blown away by the objects that have been found in Arkansas. They were really mind-blowing, yeah. actually. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I want to do something that I have no idea what. I, I, I mean, I keep thinking about those clay, they call them effigy pots. They're clay pots with animal effigies on them. They're, they're spectacular. Oh, interesting. And they're from, like, possibly the 1400s or something, mostly wow. in um, eastern Arkansas. But wow. I was like... Oh my God! Who is here? And we need to think about that. There's yeah. so much, There's so, so much, much history. history in the yeah. land. You know, we yeah. we don't. I don't think we appreciate it like we like our our parents or grandparents did appreciate the land and the history of yes, the land. Yes, so there's so much here. I mean, I love that. And I love the history, and I feel like, you know, I've heard that this was an inland sea, and I think there are fossils all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I, I really feel the history. I love that. It's, I feel very immersed in it. Yeah. And I feel very spoiled. It's just been fabulous. Good. <laughs> well, we are so glad to have you here, Thank Martha. Thank you. And I totally wish you tons of success with this book. It Thank sounds fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Great yeah. to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that'll about do it for this episode of Right Now at the Writer's Colony. I'm Chad Gurley, your host, as well as Colony Coordinator at the Writer's Colony at Derry Hollow. On behalf of Michelle Hannon, our Executive Director, Yana Jones, our Chef and Housekeeper, as well as our amazing board members, I want to say thank you for listening. I hope that you will tune in again to our next episode. There's a lot going on in 2020 at the Writer's Colony. And we're excited that you're along for the ride. Until next time, Riders Rule.